0: everyone and welcome to the flip-flops podcast. I'm Angelique Gay. I'm a mom and a writer who recently went through a major life transition. Each week I invite other creatives and change makers on to talk about their own transitions, a time in their life when they felt completely untethered and lost, which as it turns out is completely normal and can even be life-affirming. I had so many shivers as I listened to the final cut of this episode. Catherine Connors went from academia teaching at University of Toronto to Disney Executive. She was head of content and editor-in-chief of Disney Interactive. Today she shares her incredible story. Among other things, Catherine now writes the blog Her Bad Mother, which Time magazine called one of the best blogs, and she co-authored the book The Feminine Revolution today she not only shares her story but we talk about why stories matter it's so exciting enjoy <laughs> there's so many reasons that i wanted to talk to you first i just want to know how you're doing and do you feel post pandemic yet
1: <laughs> how are you feeling Oh, that's such a good question. It's such a complicated question. I can't say that I'm feeling fully post-pandemic yet. I I still feel I'm in Los Angeles, which is doing pretty well in terms of getting quote unquote back to normal, whatever normal really means you know, but it's still, you know, it's still out there. Right. And I, I, yeah. I think that we still have ample reason to be cautious yeah, <laughs> about moving back into the world. So I guess I'm, I, I'm cautiously moving towards a post-pandemic yeah. mindset.
0: Yeah. No, I find it interesting because my impression was, was always that there'd be this big party or this, you know, uh. 1920s, extravaganza and and it's really more of people saying um I really like being by myself Mm -hmm. and I actually really like quiet and Mm -hmm. I like taking long walks every day and taking care of myself so can it please stay this way yes (laughs) That's, that's, (laughs) that's like my impression and I'm wondering how it's how it feels in
1: in California yeah, it definitely feels that way to me. I mean, I'm a I'm a high-functioning introvert <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm a, or a high-performing introvert who sometimes gets mistaken for an extrovert, and I'm really relishing the, I, I have relished and, and want to continue to relish the ability to sort of opt out of the busyness of social life in Los Angeles, right? Not everything has to be a lunch or a cocktail, right? It's like, you know what? We can Zoom. <laughs> we can get on the phone, right? <laughs> you know, it's we don't have to be hustling socially in order to be connected. So I've, I, I'm hoping that, that that's one piece of 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 this period that we've been through that I'm hoping to hang on to at least a little bit.
0: Yeah. So you're like welcoming this Heige. Hege is that how you say the Danish?
1: Yes. Yes. Keeping yeah, it cozy. Exactly. Keeping <laughs> keeping it cozy. I'm all into cottage core and Hege, and you know keeping it quiet. And peaceful. Yeah, I love
0: it. So you have such an extraordinary story. It's such an honor to talk to you. This is a podcast about transition. So, mm. you know, the main transition that I see for you, not knowing you personally, is really that Transition from academia to Disney executive. So <laughs> the floor is yours. You told me you like to talk. You know, you are a <laughs> professor, an oratory spectacular person. So take us through your story and how you went from A to B. And then we'll talk about C, which is where you are now. But let's talk
1: about or that story first. D B, 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 E F or G or <laughs> somewhere it. further along in the <laughs> alphabet. Um, yeah there there have been there have been many transitions in my life, but you're quite right that the transition out of academia and there you know there were a few beats between academia and and disney executive but but that was certainly a big one. and it, it's the one that that people tend to be most intrigued or surprised by, right? It's a you know it's a it's a big leap, especially. Especially given that a big piece of what I focused on when I was still an academic was storytelling around women and girls. And I had done my fair share of critiques of Disney princesses as an academic. So it it was almost like moving over to enemy territory (laughs) in a way. So transition almost understates it. How to best tell the story. I I really thought that I would spend my life in academia. You know, I I, I grew up sort of expecting and wanting to be a writer in, in some capacity. I always loved ideas, I always loved study, I always loved mythology and poetry and all of the, you know, the sort of depth of human exploration into like the realm of the mind and the psyche of the spirit. So when I fell into, fall might not be quite the right word, but I'll use it, when I, when I fell into a rhythm in uh, on a path of being in academia, it felt like the right one and I expected that I would live a life reading books under oak trees and holding forth with students and writing academic tomes and being a scholar. And I did that for a good while. I mean, I was in the academic world until into my mid-30s. So, you know, it was a fair portion of my, uh, of my adult life. I worked in the field of political science, but in the philosophy corner of political science. So I, I looked at my, my main area was the history of political philosophy and you know, the history of ideas. And my... My, my area of study and focus was looking at how the the stories that we have told throughout history and across culture have shaped our ideas about who does or does not get to be a citizen, get to be a leader. And so my, my focus was primarily on women and girls. And I looked at everything from ancient myths and you know, religious stories, to fairy tales, to folklore, to art and, and philosophy and the, the realm of ideas to, you know, explore how we've characterized the lives of women and girls and the destinies of women and girls and the the stereotypes and archetypes of femininity with an interest in looking at, well, how has that shaped how they get to participate? And to put myself into the stories like, how do I get to participate? How will my future female children get to participate, you know, based on the way we've shaped our social spheres through story? So it happened that I was at a fairly common transitional juncture and having my first child, my daughter, in uh, 2005, when I, and I was teaching sessionally at the University of Toronto, and still very much feeling that I was going to stay on that particular path, although there are sidebars I can go into of sort of questions that were being raised for me, not least, around my own femininity. I'd been, the the school of philosophy that I'd been reared in was really pretty rigorous about the the challenges and the, the rigors of philosophy. And it was not uncommon to hear in the history of that discipline that women couldn't or shouldn't be philosophers because they are too inclined to be to become attached to motherhood and to family and to their reproductive and physical realities. And so when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was really grappling with that because I was confronted by the fact that yes, I was physically now attached to this path of becoming a mother, you know, and then I had my daughter and realized that I was in a state of experience where I couldn't think or read or study my way through the challenges, which was challenging for me because I was very accustomed to being able to think or study or read my way through challenges to just use my brain to overcome any obstacle. And so it was around that time, I mean, I can generally peg it to when my daughter was about four or five weeks old, that I was doing what many new mothers did around that time and continue to do in a slightly different context. I was furiously Googling and searching the internet for resources, you know, on how to cope with a baby that wouldn't sleep and a baby that wouldn't nurse and a baby that was, you know, just proving more challenging than I ever thought babies could be. And I found myself falling down the rabbit hole of what were then called baby blogs, then called mummy blogs, They, they weren't just written by moms, but were really a vanguard of women's writing online which I didn't realize at the time. At the time, I was just, oh my God, here are women actually telling the truth about what it's like to be a mom. The very, very first one that I found, I can still remember the first line on the page. And it was probably a Blogspot site. If anybody here listening is old enough to remember Blogspot, the very, very first line of this post I read said, dudes, this shit is hard. And it was like my brain exploded, both as a new mom and also as a scholar. I was like, oh my God, right? This whole world that I'd been exposed to of just a very narrow books about raising babies, what to expect when you're expecting, and baby whispering, and then all these magazines at the time, which were very soft-focused daisies, very whitewashed, sometimes quite literally in terms of race, portrayals of what motherhood was like, all of a sudden, I was seeing a story about motherhood being told in the voice of an actual, real, live mother. And I just kept following the links and went down the rabbit hole. And as a new mom, again, I I felt saved. But also as a scholar, you know, who had been studying the history of how we tell stories about women was in this space where it's like, oh, here are women telling their own stories about their private lives, their domestic lives, and challenging all the assumptions that we usually hold in the culture about what it means to raise children. And so at the same time, I was falling down this rabbit hole as a new mom. I was falling down this rabbit hole as an academic who recognized, and I stand by this to this day, that there was something really important and Transformative happening to storytelling in the culture that for the first time in human history, there was an opportunity for women, and that this would obviously extend to any other minoritized communities. A first time in human history, there was access to public storytelling tools to be able to pull down the veil of the feminine space and begin like sharing it to the world and basically demystifying the experience and demythologizing the experience. And so I, having fallen down that rabbit hole, I stayed down that rabbit hole. I, I stayed in academia for probably a year and a half or two years longer. But at the same time, I started a website of my own, a blog of my own, and began exploring the, you know, the the storytelling community and ecosystem and participating in it myself and found myself at some point with a business, <laughs> quite accidentally, it's a whole other story, and a recognition that I wanted to explore that space to really look at how women were actively telling their own stories rather than stay in a sort of a more detached academic space, just looking at how stories had been told about women in the past. <laughs> I
0: want to ask as a writer, you know, you you were always writing from the point of view of being a scholar of writing about women and women's stories. And then all of a sudden, you were a woman and a mom writing from actual experience and your emotions. So I'm wondering, did you jump right into that different type of writing? Or did you find yourself having a hard time maybe writing more as as a scholar. How did you change the voice in your head? Was it
1: easy or difficult? Uh, That's such a good question. It's interesting. I haven't really thought about it that closely. I will say that in some respects, it was a little bit of both. In some respects, it was very, very easy because it was just a lot like Journal writing, like mm-hmm. diary keeping, except it was public, right? And I'll be honest when I say that it took a while for me to truly appreciate that it was, in fact, public, that if I could read other women's blogs, then they could read mine. <laughs> right. But when, when I first began experimenting, it was, you know, as, as a new mom who was really grappling with her experience, it was, it felt like a relief to be able to share it, to say it out loud. At the same time, I, I was still had very much an academic hat on. And anybody that wants to go dig into the archives of her, her bad mother, you know, my blog can see that I like. I wrote, for example, I wrote a post called Socrates in Sleep. I did a series on <laughs> looking at sleep training through the lens of ancient Greek philosophy. So, if you want to get <laughs> okay, so how dorky I could be.
0: You always have I, that I, academic I always, mind at the same time, kind of watching yourself writing about something that you had only looked at from a distance, and then all of a sudden you were experiencing it. And I love that you kept that with you.
1: It was it was interesting because, I mean, initially, a big part of my intent was like, oh, I just I'm going to look at the I'm just I'm going to study this. Right. You know, it's like finding the Rosetta Stone, you know, of like, oh, like this is, you know, I really believed I still do believe that it, it represented this really important turning point in how we understand women's domestic lives, women's lives you know, in general. And, and so there was a part of me that was continually, and, and I couldn't help it, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you've been in academia as long as I had been at the time. It, it's hard to, to shake it. I still sometimes refer to myself as a recovering academic. You never really... <laughs> lose it. So it was like, I couldn't help but write about if I was going to write about sleep training, then of course, I was thinking about Socrates. You know, I wrote about Eros and our love of our babies. <laughs> and I think I, you know, I, I think I like I probably drug in every philosopher from the canon at various points to, to try to make sense of the space that I was in. But at the core of it, I was telling my own story. And that was part of what was radical about it for me was that there was this opportunity to actually do while exploring, to actually be in the community, to be a storyteller while thinking about the larger implications of what being a storyteller of femininity might mean.
0: So you went from academia to having this huge moment of saying, I am going to join the revolution of telling people what it's really like. Yeah. And yeah, so I- you started your blog and then you probably created a community quite quickly. And then
1: what happened? I mean, in a way, it feels like this was the horse and buggy era of, uh, yeah. you know, digital storytelling. And in a way it was. I mean, this was, I started my blog at the end of 2005, beginning of 2006. And I mean, there weren't, I mean, the Facebook wasn't a public thing. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. In 2000, 2006, it was when Google ads began rolling out. So for the first time, monetization became a factor. And it was when brands and businesses started looking at digital storytelling as an opportunity to engage with their consumers. Consumers with their markets, there were two things that were happening. I, I was in the early wave of quote unquote mommy bloggers, and my blog became quite popular and had a really big readership. And that was happening at the time when there was this birth of this interest in a digital economy, which really didn't quite exist yet. So I and others of my peers in the space at the time were being approached really fairly regularly by everybody, ranging from Johnson and Johnson to Microsoft to General Motors to you know everybody. Thought, oh, we need to think differently about how we get in touch with a female audience. And lo and behold, I found myself realizing sometime in early 2007 that I was making more money from my blog than I was as a sessional instructor. It's not a hard bar to past <laughs> for what that's worth and that it wasn't just that I had found this sort of craft you know that this thing that I wanted to continue doing for myself and studying I had, I had found a, a business opportunity and so I stopped teaching I left academia and began building my own business just a small media and consulting company based around my blog working with a number of pretty big corporate players like Johnson Johnson and Intel and General Motors and others and the United Nations Global fund and there was a lot of cool, fun stuff to do. And it was in the course of that, it was actually when I was working with Johnson & Johnson, I went to the first TED Women Conference in 2010. And there met Rufus Griscom and Alisa Vokman, who were the founders of a, a website called Babel. I later re-encountered Rufus at another conference. We just began talking about, you know, the shifting culture of storytelling for women through blogs. And I had all sorts of ideas about how to really grow and scale and connect storytellers together to have an even bigger impact. And he convinced me to move my family from Canada to New York City to build that at Babel And so I did. And a, what was of, Babel Babel was a website primarily for moms. It was sort of in the mom and family space. It was, I mean, the, gosh, this was early days, but that this was back when people did go to websites as destinations. And he and Elisa, he had founded a platform called Nerve and then transitioned to a family website and he and I, over the course of a couple of conferences, spent some time ideating on what could be done to elevate the discourse and connect more storytellers in the space and have their writing have a bigger and deeper impact. We imagined like a New Yorker for parents kind of thing and he convinced me that I should take my family from Toronto, Canada and move them to New York City and build that on the Babel platform. Form, and so we did, which was the first step to Disney because Disney became very, very interested in what we were building and set about acquiring us. So it became a very, very fast leap from having my own small company to building this storytelling network. We would now call it, we, we might call it a creator network even now. We weren't even talking about influencers then. This feels like it was so long ago. <laughs> it was only a decade. <laughs> but Disney was rethinking its own digital strategies and it acquired us and acquired me. And that was how I found myself within a span of really a relatively short number of years going from being a scholar that sometimes led seminars talking about how dangerous the disney princess industrial complex was to actually being <laughs> at the company standing in rooms telling people that they needed to rethink princess entirely
0: it's Such an insane story. It's amazing. So when we spoke last time, you said you're very proud of your accomplishments there, but that you feel like you hadn't done enough. So I'm wondering, what was your vision and what did you want to accomplish? And what what do you feel you actually did accomplish? And kind of set the stage by saying how the Disney princess was portrayed before you got to Disney and how that changed once you were there.
1: Sure. Well, you know, at, at the time that I arrived at Disney, which was in late 2011, culturally we were at a kind of peak of princess criticism in popular culture. So it was no longer just crusty female feminist academics that were criticizing princesses. It was, you know, it had started to seep into popular culture. So Peggy Orenstein, for example, had written Cinderella Ate My Daughter, which became a very popular book. We weren't quite yet at Goldie Blocks moving on to the scene with its princess bashing Super Bowl commercials, but we were close. There was there was a fair amount of commentary, in other words, around how princess. Princesses were damaging to girls. Now, it's not insignificant that this is happening, I think, in part because of this rise of female storytelling on the Internet, that women were talking to each other about how they're raising their children and talking about the pink aisle and about commercialized femininity and th- talking about the influence of popular culture on their children in, in a way that they just hadn't been at a, at a scale that they hadn't been you know, in generations previous. So I was coming in at a time when there was a lot of princess criticism. In fact, when we were going through the acquisition process, it was one of the things that we had to navigate because we had all these independent writers, bloggers in our network, and we wanted to protect their ability to be critical of princess. So we actually had to discuss that
0: in the Mm -hmm. acquisition
1: process of how we were going to navigate those things. But part of what made Babel and Babel Voices, the storyteller platform, so rich and so popular was that it was a space for truth-telling, right? For honest conversations. And one of those on- honest conversations was, guys, what do we think about princesses? So I came in, I wouldn't even say I came in with a vision. I came in with, not, and maybe it was kind of a chip on my shoulder a little bit. I, I, I came in with a sort of some amount of cynicism around what could be possible within the context of our moving into the Disney environment and whether we'd be able to continue telling our own honest stories. But I also came in thinking, you know what, if there's anywhere, if if there's any opportunity to make a change in how we tell stories about and to girls, Disney is a pretty big opportunity to potentially do that. And because I came in on this acquisition, it's like if anybody who's been part of an acquisition by a big company will probably tell you something similar. You go through this honeymoon period where you're the golden children and they hang on every word you say and you've been bought, you've been acquired because you're exciting and interesting and you're bringing a fresh perspective. So, I was fortunate to have the ear of decision makers and to quickly have a status within the company to be able to say, hey... I want to tell you something that you're not going to want to hear about how you need to think about princesses. And, and so it kind of started that way, right? It was, I needed a way to feel okay about bringing this storytelling energy into a company that had been a tremendous steward of fairy tales and folklore for girls, but that also was the steward of a kind of storytelling that made girls sometimes seem passive or weak. And, you know, the, all the tropes about just waiting for one's prince to come. That You can't blame all of that on Disney a lot of those things are baked into the original stories themselves but the Disney model of the Disney princess stories of the fairy tales was to really highlight sort of the beauty right the feminine the traditionally feminine attributes of these characters and have them not be or seem particularly active or assertive or, or what have you now my perspective on that has shifted to some extent, because I had to go so deep into it. But this was, at at the time I came in, this was just at this cusp of Brave being made, which was a break from the traditional princess model. This was just as Frozen was in development, but before Frozen had been, had shifted to the type of story it became, a, a sister story rather than a love story. It was still very much at a time when the conventional wisdom was that you tell girl stories to girls, You tell boys' stories to boys, but also girls will watch them, and you have to maintain some pretty strict lines around the sort of gender construction of storytelling. So I came in and said, you know, you are, we are, we, it was we at that point potentially facing a challenge as the criticism of princesses escalates and it will I said at the time still continue to escalate because all of these women and moms and people on the internet are not going to stop talking about this so if Disney is going to be the steward of fairy tale and folklore that it has been historically that's going to be the leading cultural institution around the stories that capture the mythologies of, of, of stories about girls and women then Disney needs to be ahead of this conversation as well. So we need to start talking and thinking differently about how we think about princess, not just from a marketing capacity, but, you know, across the board. So that, which is a long-winded way of saying that the vision sort of emerged through those conversations. I came in with a bit of a feminist chip on my shoulder about princesses and had to go through my own learning process, but also just took it as an opportunity to make change in a space where that change could have a potentially huge impact.
0: And so how did Frozen go from being a love story to a sister story?
1: Oh, well, there's there's so much lore around it. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, Frozen is based on the original fairy tale was The Ice Queen, and it ended up straying and largely came through some innovations by the co-screenwriter, Jennifer Lee, who took the opportunity to do some experimenting with the story of, of taking Elsa from being a villain and having it follow a very conventional Fairy tale story structure to one that took a different tack. It was, you know, without, you know, w- without violating NDAs and, you know, right. all the keep the black helicopters encircling my house, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was kind of slipped under the radar, right? And, you know, I think people within Disney were surprised that Frozen was as successful as it was. And it became this very, very powerful catalyst for furthering the conversation about these stories told differently in different ways could become a model for a different way of stewarding fairy tales. So it was the, you know, it was the crack that we needed to be able to say, there's an opportunity here. It's not just about avoiding the softening of the princess franchise, you know, as a market consideration, but this is also, this is what keeps Disney in the lead is by telling different types of stories, types of stories that are not just inspiring girls in a different way, but also inspiring boys and dads and creating a different kind of framework for the kind of entertainment that children will love, but also that their parents will feel good about. Mm
0: -hmm. So do you have pride around having something to do with that
1: change? And (laughs) what can you share about what you feel you accomplished during your time there? When I left Disney, it was partly, well, it was in no small part, because I, I sort of felt like I was just extremely limited in how much change I could affect, right? That, you know, a a ship like Disney moves very powerfully, but very slowly. (laughs) That making big changes is not, you know, doesn't feel like particularly accessible. So it actually wasn't until I'd left Disney and was sort of looking back at the influence of all of that work and all those conversations. And of course it wasn't just me. I was working in, in many groups across different divisions working to move the needle in small but significant what I can now look back now and say or significant ways in things like the consumer products, right? The type of princess dolls that are sold and the types of princess costumes, you know, the types of television shows that were being created for Disney Junior, for example, and the integration of new storytelling there, the shift and, you know, the development of different types of marketing campaigns, even though marketing didn't feel like it was the brass ring, it became this really important aspect of both signaling and driving change around Princess because they were public declarations about what the company valued. So there was this major campaign that was launched at the end of 2014, 2015 called Dream Big Prince. That focused on the capacity and scope of pursuing the power of one's imagination and ability to dream as the focus of these stories, as opposed to the the simply waiting to be rescued aspect. So a marketing campaign like Dream Big Princess was this big signal to the world and to the culture that what Disney was valuing was assertive princesses, was assertive female characters who had big dreams and big ambitions and pursued them. And that in itself became a way of reshaping the kind of story you can tell about the stories, right? It became a mechanism for not just looking at the animated stories, but looking at the live action Cinderella, for example, where her feminine characteristics of being compassionate and kind become superpowers, in a way, that it is her compassion and her kindness that make her powerful. And so it wasn't just about cracking open the doors a little bit to get different types of movies made like Moana and Ray and the Last Dragon and the stories that we've started to become more familiar with, but also cracking the door open to what's being celebrated in female characters across different stories coming out of the Disney ecosystem.
0: You said something to me in our last conversation that really, really blew my mind. And I said, say it again, say it again. And you said, the traditional story, I'm paraphrasing here, the traditional story of the male hero Mm, is... Go ahead. You know what I'm saying?
1: <laughs> yeah, the hero's journey. <laughs> the hero's journey for a man versus the hero's journey for a woman. Not most people are familiar with the idea of the hero's journey, and certainly anybody who is adjacent to screenwriting and the culture of entertainment has, has probably heard it many, many times. The hero's journey is a is a story structure, is a story template. The term is most famously associated with the scholar Joseph Campbell. But it's a story template that basically traces the arc of a protagonist, a hero through his and it is his <laughs> arc of discovery of who he is as a hero so star wars is a hero's journey it's luke skywalker's hero's journey uh, the marvel movies are heroes they're superheroes journeys many of the famous stories in joseph campbell was famous for and, and and got criticized in some circles for basically applying the hero's journey template to any kind of mythopoetic story. So any story that we might hold up and say ah this this tracks to human yearning and human dreaming and human ambition. The thing about the hero's journey is though that it really is a hero's journey and not a heroine's journey. The the core motivator of a hero's journey involves that desire or motivation at some level to discover who one is, right? And, and at the core of it is the discovery, the, the hero as discovers that he is the hero, a savior, Harry Potter, a hero's journey, where there's, a, there's an arc of struggle and exploration and discovery of one's own power. This, however, is a really masculine story, and I would say a sort of a, a masculine, a story that applies most clearly to men of some status and some scope of freedom. Right, So it's open to men or boys as an imaginative possibility to imagine how do I discover how extraordinary I am? How do I discover how great I am? How do I discover, can I discover, will I discover that I'm here to save the world? Women's stories, you know, the, the, the stories that capture women's aspirations, and I'm, I'm going to be doing some stereotyping here, but there's a lot of there's a lot of research and data to back this up as a sort of common theme in women and girls' lives. The stories that speak most, you know, and again, this tracks to some degree across history and across cultures for women and girls are not stories of discovering how great you are or of, of how you might discover yourself to be the savior of the world, right? The A public hero. The stories are more likely to be about how you free yourself, how you become liberated, how you make it possible to make your own choices, simply to be able to escape the constraints of the domestic sphere. So fairy tales, the fairy tales with female protagonists, like the princess stories, are stories about how one liberates oneself from circumstances of oppression. Cinderella wants to go to the ball. Cinderella wants to be able to dream of something more than just sweeping the hearth and taking care of her stepfamily. Snow White wants to escape an evil stepmother, but ultimately she just wants to be safe. She wants to feel free to be safe. The Little Mermaid wants to be able to discover a world outside of the ocean. The stories that we often criticize as narrowly romantic or narrow love stories are at their core stories about being or becoming free to choose who you love, right? Which for most women across history and across cultures has not been a freedom that we usually enjoy. I enjoyed right? This is relatively recent that we are free to choose who we start a family with and open our own bank accounts and have jobs and lives outside the home. For most of human history, and again, across most human cultures, women have been very, very constrained in their freedom. So a heroine's journey is not about heroism at all. It's about personal liberation. It's about being able to decide for yourself that you have a dream you want to be free to pursue. And they could be small, modest, ordinary dreams. You look at literature across modernity, you look at the stories of Jane Austen or Tolstoy's Anna Karenina or Madame Bovary, these stories where the tragedy at the core or the drama at the core is simply about a woman wanting to be able to choose for herself how she lives. She does not care about saving the world. She does not care about greatness in the sense of world historical greatness, of becoming, discovering that she's the chosen one. She just wants to be able to choose how to live her life. And so the heroine's journey is a much more ordinary journey, but it's one that speaks to that longstanding core yearning to be able to decide for yourself what a choice worthy life is. I think this came up in
0: conversation where I was saying how much I loved eat, pray, love. And mm-hmm. as you talk about it, it really is that story of a woman liberating herself from a marriage and then coping with the guilt that she feels and then allowing herself to love again. Yes. So yeah, can you which, think
1: of go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say, which in, in many you know the common context for that is for that to be taboo, right? Divorced women have had scarlet letters exactly on them. Like it's been the least desirable thing for a woman is to end up divorced, even widowed, right? Mm-hmm. We usher women into the crone stage, you know, of wearing all black and hiding away from the world on the basis of their relationship to men. So stories that celebrate that making it being able to make a decision to leave an unhappy relationship. From the point of view of stories across history, that's really radical. Eat, Pray, Love is a radical story set against Anna Karenina or Madame Bovary. Exactly. You know? It's
0: radical. And also, once she does fall in love, she really fights with the idea of giving up her freedom. So it's like she yes. decides twice to free herself.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's a story of liberation. And it's a story about the struggle around liberation. It's a story. So many stories, you look at like the Bridges of Madison County or mm. you know, a- other stories like that, where the core dramatic Tension. It is a woman trying to decide what she's going to sacrifice or if she's going to sacrifice something in order to attain some measure of freedom.
0: So, can you think of a story that has a woman at the center of the typical male hero's journey? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean.
1: My my, my daughter was just watching Black Widow, right? So there are lots of examples of stories where a female character has been put into the position of the hero Hunger Games, obviously, is a, you know, as Mm a, you know, is maybe, um, um, a, a longer standing example. But again, if you look at the arc and the trajectory of the story, it's like, those are both stories, Black Widow or Hunger Games, where you can put a man into that story and it will make a man or a boy and it'll make as much sense, right? It's like that that the character is being treated as gender neutral in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an accident, in those stories, you know, I, Black Widow using, you know, some of that backstory is that there are elements of... Um, leaning into gender, like backstories of trauma and rape and that sort of thing. Very, very common in stories where women are more conventionally heroic. But they're stories that are also deemed to be appealing to men and boys, right? It's a Black Widow as a superhero story. Men and boys are expected to go to those movies. A love story, Twilight, different thing. The focus is on the love story, the choosing who you love and the action heroic element are held enough at bay that they're not the most significant piece. A lot of young adult fiction of YA fiction, has the sort of love story at its core because, not because in a hero's journey it becomes this point of discovery and you know, a sort of a point of tension or conflict for the hero's arc think of the Matrix, for example or all the Star Wars trilogies in stories where the protagonist is female from a a more feminine standpoint the love story is there because it is representative of of, of what what she's yearning for, not necessarily personally, but what We culturally have decided is the likely sort of source of her aspiration. Again, it's not that culturally that we have this ingrained sense that women and girls only want love. It's just that for so long, that was the signal point of their limitation right of not being able to choose who to love and there's a we've got a bit of a cultural hangover (laughs) around that, which is why they resonate right this you know why a grand love which is a very personal story it has nothing to do with saving the world it has to do with being able to find and own your own happiness. Mm. So why is it important
0: that we recalibrate the heroine's story? Why is it important to put that out there for our uh. girls, for ourselves? And what do you see as a more evolved version of, I keep wanting to say, how do we get it right? But not that there is a right and wrong. I think all these yeah. stories are valid to your point. It's revolutionary to tell your truth. So yeah, why is it important? And what do you think is the future of female storytelling?
1: Well, I, there, there are a bunch. Of reasons why it's important. One of the most important is that it shifts. If we can get comfortable with telling a different story of what it means to be heroic, right? Of what it means to be a protagonist, right? Of what it means to be the main actor or author of a story. If we can shift that away from the idea that heroism always looks like being a savior, being a chosen one, saving the world. Then we have an opportunity to recalibrate how we think about power, right? That when we can look at stories where the heroism is quieter, where it is about leading a choice worthy life, about securing one's own freedom, about being compassionate and caring, you know, again, the example of the live action Cinderella, where that message is really put on the surface that it's it is her capacity for compassion and nurture that make her the that make her the protagonist that make her the character to root for there's there's something that's fundamentally that can represent a fundamental shift in how we understand our own humanity if we get away or or we allow ourselves to get away from the idea that the pinnacle of human aspiration is to be the strong man on top right to be the chosen one to be the one individual who changes everything, it's arguably, and I I, I mean, I, I love Marvel movies and Star Wars and Hero's journeys is, is as much as the next person. So I don't want to overstate it, but it's not an accident that we have these very, very individualized, and individuated ideas of heroic power, of grand or great power, because we've so mythologized this as, as human aspiration. So it's not just that it's good for our girls, you know, and for women to create space and to validate a different kind of story. I think it's good for everybody. The other aspect of this, too, is to push against this idea that to be a strong girl or a strong woman means acting or looking like or behaving like a guy, right? So when we just put a female superhero into the movie, it's like, that's great, because we're getting female representation. But all we're seeing her do is perform in a masculine posture, right? We're looking at her take on the role that a guy would usually fill, take on all the attributes and practices and performances of a male hero. And when we do that, we just re- enforce this idea that the human default is male and masculine, right? That all anyone should want to be is a masculine character who emerges as a hero. And if you do it wearing a skirt, that's great, right? That's good for women and girls, but it still reinforces the idea that the default setting for humanity is a masculine one. And that again, is that problematic for women and girls, but it's also problematic for boys. I mean, boys should have different models of what it means to move richly through the world, right? Boys should be able to see stories where it's portrayed as, as choice-worthy to be compassionate and nurturing, to want to take care of children or take care of a community, to be partners rather than heroes. So
0: how does all of this fit into your book that you wrote with Amy Stanton called The Feminine
1: Revolution? Mm. Well, the reason... Amy and I are both very, very passionate about the, the the topic of rethinking femininity for similar reasons and for for some divergent ones. I mean, for me, and I know that she shares this. One of the primary motivators was to was to interrogate femininity and to to demythologize it a little bit and and to look at all the attributes and characteristics and practices that we call feminine or that we code as feminine and look at them through a slightly different lens and see the ways that they can be seen as powerful as rich as choice worthy as opposed to as weak or as negative, which they're usually characterized as, and also to be able to look at the way that we've kind of historically picked and choose what attributes are associated with women and what are associated with men and how we distinguish between the two of them, right? It's generally considered to be a very laudable thing for men to be charismatic, right? And to be to have all the attributes of attractiveness and charisma and appealingness to people. But for women that's seen as superficial or vain or vapid or 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 negative in some way. So the pursuit of the book was really to encourage anyone that might be reading it or hearing about it to ask themselves when they think about an attribute or a practice or notice it in themselves that they think of as feminine or as masculine, why they think of it that way. And whether they think about it as negative or positive, through that light, in an effort to be able to start to shift our thinking around things like compassion and nurture and sensitivity and emotionality and so you know uh, sociability, things that are arguably really powerful human attributes and that deserve to be celebrated as human attributes and not just as female attributes.
0: So, as you were writing the book and putting together these characteristics, was there one particular characteristic that you realized is your superpower?
1: Yeah, I think I, I thought you were going to ask, you know, which one. Was toughest <laughs> there were a couple that, that, that were tough simply because they were I'd love to good. hear about that as I will well. tell you I will tell you that one the one that I identified as my superpower was sensitivity and it actually really and it was in the process of writing the book that I felt that I got into closer relationship with the idea of sensitivity and my own experience of sensitivity not as being reactive right or being emotional which is usually how we think of feminine sensitivity we think of and often these tropes fly around of girls crying easily and being easily provoked emotionally and that sort of thing the reframe on sensitivity that really powerfully resonated for me and a powerful reminder for me when we were writing the book was that sensitivity is a kind of intelligence, right? It's a kind of awareness to your surroundings. It's a kind of a heightened ability to notice and to be in tune with things. And sure, sometimes it can lead to more intense or more extensive reactions, right? You might be more likely to get your feelings hurt, but it's because you're noticing all the nuances and complexities of things that people are saying, right? And so that's sensitivity of being sensitive to my own cues and emotions and movements and being sensitive to others, I became really, really aware that that was not a disability or a detriment or something problematic, but but something that has everything to do with how successful I've been. Being able to read the room, being able to respond to the room, being able to to take all the cues that I'm accumulating through my emotional intelligence and use them to my own advantage. It's also been, by the way, but has allowed me to be, I think, a much more effective parent, to my daughter who is a highly sensitive human being who definitely needs to be reminded that it's not being sensitive isn't being emotional it's being very deeply deeply in tune with the world around you and that means that your nerve endings might be a little bit raw so what were the hardest ones to write about the hardest that the hardest hardest one was the chapter on crying Amy, my co-author who you've interviewed, is a self-professed, easy crier, and it was very easy for her to wrap her head and heart around the celebration of crying as as a powerful thing. I have for a very long time, I mean, since I was very young, identified as someone who is not a crier and somebody who is very uncomfortable crying. So when we were working together on that chapter, it was really confronting for me (laughs) because it forced me to... Ask myself was like, well, that I'm just not, or have I so internalized? (laughs)
0: You know, mm.
1: misogyny that I've just, that I taught myself from an early age that strong human beings don't cry. That because it's feminine, it's weak and I never wanted to be seen as weak. So the the crying chapter became this sort of bellwether for me of interrogating my own stuff around, oh, did I resist that because I saw it as weak? I have my own internalized misogyny around that. Or is this something that is just some people just are that way and that happens to be the way that I am. It was really tough and I still do not have an answer.
0: <laughs> so how do we watch a movie like, Black Widow with our kids. How do we watch Disney princesses? How do we help our girls take in everything that they're hit with every day and have conversations about it? Because the biggest struggle, and this is what we had spoken about on the phone, was just, you know, I have a daughter now and she wants to be Elsa for Halloween. And I'm not anti Princess, but I wouldn't want her to watch the older Disney movies so how do you have conversations like this with your daughter and empower her if you're okay with that word even that word has become mm-hmm. controversial now <laughs> in that it means you need someone else to give you power when you can yep. empower yourself how do you how do you open a dialogue like that I know that you talk a lot about it with your daughter so
1: what, well, what are I, your I thoughts on of, that? I talk a lot about it with both my daughter and my son and your son um, yeah of course yeah it's and, and there are two ways of coming at it I mean one to, to take on the question of the the older Disney movies and the more traditional stories. Those are as important to have conversations about as the newer ones are because they're an important point of reference. It's it's very, very possible, and not least because those stories are based on very, 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 very old stories. You know, the the oldest recognize story Cinderella story comes from like 3rd century China right it's like these are these were not created in Europe out of whole cloth these are these are stories that have been resonating in different forms for a very long time what was in the name top, of the
0: story that originated in China
1: Oh you're catching me on the start a little bit I That's can't okay. remember the exact name of it but it was the, the slipper was not glass it was fur <laughs> And there's some speculation that in the translation to the from the older versions to the French that the ver and the ver got confused, you know, and it became, went from fur to, to glass. And there even there's, you know, some scholars say that there's older stories, even like mm-hmm. you know, pre-biblical, you know, ancient Greek and Cretan stories that that track to those models. All of that is a long winded way of saying that there's value in looking at the legacy and history of these stories and reframing them for our children. So for example, I've had the conversation many times with my children that if you look, you can look at the Cinderella story, not as a story about a princess being rescued, but a story about a girl who wanted something different for herself and who actually worked hard to, to try to realize it. And that she, you know, she summoned all the help of the, the various creatures in the Disney version that support her. And they supported her because she was compassionate and loving and nurturing. They wanted to help her. She had a fairy godmother because she attracted that to herself the fairy godmother only appears to people who are already doing the work themselves and helps them manifest their power. So the story of Cinderella is a sort of story of her own liberation, right? The story of Snow White, even the Disney version, is a story of a girl escaping a terrifying situation and making a new home for herself, right? If you put a boy in the character of Snow White and, and just play the whole story on the same track, you start to see it, it's like, oh, this is kind of amazing. This young person rescued themselves, made a home, made a new community for themselves to keep themselves safe. There are ways of looking at the attributes that are shared in these stories and pointing them out as rich and as valuable and at the same time looking at the star wars movies and the marvel movies and looking at the superheroes and asking questions about that's really awesome it's cool to see a kick-ass girl right but you know what else about her is powerful right what are the attributes of other characters that are powerful right in the hunger games i've spoken about this when i do talks on young adult fiction and and feminine young adult fiction it's really it's kind of powerful that in the hunger Games stories that the primary male character pita is a baker and is sensitive and is compassionate and is nurturing and you can point to things like that and say look how powerful it is to have this boy have these characteristics that we associate with girls right
0: and also the main character
1: is protecting her younger sister protecting your younger sister so exactly it's it's looking at the stuff that goes beyond the muscle right, or the the superior physical force, right, or the superior technology, right? Iron Man is powerful because he's super rich and he's super smart. and He can make any weapon that he wants, right? And Hulk has physical strength. And there's a lot of focus on physical strength and being dominating. But you can also find the threads where it's like, look who is nurturing. Look how Bruce Banner really grapples with his temper and his anger, right? Look for the nuances and how we understand power in these stories. Look for the things that we celebrate. If a character seems really cool, ask your kids why. Like, what is it? about them and if a character seems not cool right ask them that why is the quieter weaker character always the less powerful one sometimes they're the ones that through the force of their compassion or their sensitivity or their intellect actually have some capacity to do something even more interesting than the, the ones that we usually think of as the hero
0: I love that I love it's it's all about how you help your child digest the story that they've just seen
1: yeah and to and to look for it's, it's always the value in storytelling anyway, the, the force of stories is to be able to find yourself in the stories, to find your way into those landscapes and say, what, what resonates for me? What am I learning? What am I noticing? What is there to expand upon, right? You know, Little Mermaid is another one I like to talk about because it's often, you know, especially in criticisms of the Disney versions that oh, she gives up her voice for a boy. And it's just like, it's the ultimate kind of story of feminine self-sacrifice. It's like, no, she's curious. She wants to explore another world right? Mm. The love story is a sort of, is a piece there, but but she doesn't give up her voice because she falls in love. From the very beginning, she wants to, she, she's curious and she wants to explore and she wants to discover. And- you know she falls into a sort of classic drama that we probably fear most of our kids will fall into they want to explore and then they get into trouble right you know there are ways to explore it's so interesting
0: walk. because as you say that I always got hung up on the fact that she gives up her voice but she still has her other senses she has she can still her see she can still feel she can walk she can run she can do all yeah. of these other things and, and so she for her them, and she uses them that's so interesting I never looked at it that way
1: yeah it's just it's choosing how to look at the stories the world is full of stories that we can characterize as problematic, right? But it all depends on how you look at them. It all depends on what you pull out, what you notice. And and that's simply a question of learning to be a, you know, a sort of critical engager with the culture. And I, I think that's the best thing we want our kids to be, rather than saying, look, this is a bad characterization of girls or boys, and this is a good one, to say, what do you notice? What resonates for you? What seems true? What seems false? What makes you sad? What makes you feel strong? To find themselves in the stories. I love that. I just wanted to
0: talk about that documentary, this changes everything about the Gina Davis Institute and all the work that they did. And I just wanted to, to me, it all relates in the idea of the CSI effect, which is Mm. that Girls started signing up to be coroner. Exactly. So all of a sudden, more women started signing up to have that job title after seeing it on CSM. So the whole idea of female representation being so important. So I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on all the work that the Gina Davis Institute has done from what was announced yesterday with Lego? I don't know if you saw that mm, yesterday. Yep. I just find it so exciting. What are your thoughts on that? And so you know, I really like your interpretation that it's it's all about what we pick out of. story and and the conversations we have with our kids but then do you also agree that representation needs to be Oh, needs to be improved. And are you hopeful? And what do you have to say about that documentary?
1: Yeah, no, look, it's representation is crucial, right? If girls and women don't see themselves in the stories or, you know, kids of color, kids, you know, LGBTQIA kids, you know, if we can't see ourselves in the stories, we can't see ourselves in humanity, right? It's what I was talking before about how masculinity and the male experience is the default human. It's because the vast majority of stories that have been told across history have been men's stories. Right. And, you know, across Europe and North America, and, you know, they become white male stories and white male heterosexual stories. So th- there's a reason why we see that as the default, and it's because we don't see other forms of human experience or historically we've not seen other forms of human experience, which takes us back full circle to my transition out of academia. Right. All of a sudden it was like, holy shit, I'm seeing stories told by real women about their real lives, right? And diverse women, not just like tall, willowy, blonde supermodels with baby bumps, you know, in parenting magazines. So that that being able to see oneself, to to able to see one's experience reflected and to see oneself in ways that stretch one's imagination about what one could maybe do are absolutely crucial. And so Gina Davis's work, the Gina Davis Institute, the everything that they've been doing is absolutely crucial because it is moving the needle on it, it because it's, it's put pressure, you know, on the gate kept story makers to actually think differently about representation. It's 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 important when we think about as much as, you know, I said for boys to be able to see compassion, nurture, and sensitivity as as worthy things, that's a kind of diversity of representation we need to see. But it is, of course, also girls being able to see themselves in leadership roles, girls of color being able to see themselves as leadership role in leadership roles. When we did Doc McSuffin's at Disney Jr. When I was there, it was one of the things that was really, really powerful to see how the impact of that unfolded. It's so, a, you know, an animated series, a cartoon series about a, a young black girl who played doctor, you know, Ooh. with her stuffed animals and had a whole life world around being a doctor, you know, and, and we had all sorts of campaigns that were engaging black female doctors and doctors of color around this sort of horizon of possibility for girls to be, you know what, I can be a doctor too. And not only can I be a doctor, but I can look at a representation of a doctor, not as a sort of heroic, but cold surgeon, like a la house, right? But as mm-hmm. a compassionate, as somebody that put band-aids on scraped. Knees, right? As somebody who's a nurturer. And so when representation both shows what's possible across the scope of all the heroic stuff that we've been talking about, but also shows that there are a multitude of ways of being, then we're actually increasing the the scope of possibility for our kids and organizations like Gina Davis's and, you know, others that are out there are doing absolutely crucial work in this regard.
0: What is your daughter and what is your son going to be for Halloween? Oh my gosh, you know,
1: I don't even know. Because (laughs) (laughs) Last year, there was no Halloween. We were just talking about that the other day, you know, about how we hadn't even given it given it much thought because last year there, you know, there wasn't any, or I think we drove around in our car to one of the, you know, there was like a drive-through, trick-or-treating thing. In previous years, we've had our fair share of princesses and Marvel characters. We have had Katniss, you know, we have had largely drawn from the stories, which is a reflection of how impactful the stories are on our kids. Peter Pan, Minnie Mouse... <laughs> you know, all the characters that loom large in their imagination. How about your daughter? Elsa. Elsa. Yeah. Yeah, She
0: she says, I want to freeze everybody, mama.
1: See, there you go. Right? I want to use
0: my power. That's right. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I could keep talking to you. We didn't even get into feminism and COVID and employment and women stepping back from from working and whatnot, but perhaps that'll be for another day.
1: (laughs) Another day for sure. No, it was so much fun talking to you, and I look forward to doing it again.
0: Thank you so much. And happy Halloween.
1: Happy Halloween to you too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Like I said, I had shivers this whole time. She talks about Disney princesses like they are real people that I can relate to. And I think that speaks to her passion for myths and politics and stories, but it also speaks to how these stories become a part of us as individuals, as a culture, and as a species. They create a common language that helps us understand our lives, our dreams, our life choices. To quote Oprah, freedom means having the ability to make your own choices. And this whole idea has helped me reframe movies and princess movies, Disney movies, I may not have shown my daughter before this conversation. For example, with The Little Mermaid, yes, Ariel gives up her voice, but that is her choice to make, and that's a powerful narrative to focus on. I also love the idea of changing our culture's default story from the hero who saves the world all alone to the hero or heroine who works together with others using something other than physical power. Can the story of humanity change from a story about ego-driven individuals to a species that works together using our combined empathy and sensitivity to what's around us? I believe it's worth asking the question. I want to read something from Catherine's blog that caught my eye. The name of the blog post is, A Princess is a Wish Your Imagination Makes. She writes, Children, after all, tend not to be hardcore literalists. They have no respect for the authoritative vision of an all-powerful author. They are postmodern and post-structuralist in spirit, and they are anarchic in their play. Cinderella and Tinkerbell and Rapunzel and Ariel and Alice and Pepe and Hannah Montana, don't ask, aren't fixed characters to a child. They are suggestions. So when Amelia, her daughter, asks me to play Anna to her Elsa, yes, she always gets to be Elsa. I never say no. Because if she grows up believing that there's power in imagination and magic in storymaking and that a bright blue sparkly dress never stopped anyone from being awesome, then I'll be more than happy. And if a little bit of her playful enthusiasm rubs off on me, then all the better. I love that. If you enjoyed our chat, please hit follow, please share this episode, or send me a note. I love when you do that talk soon.